Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Well, we had lots of feedback from our last episode about limited atonement, and it was great. We enjoyed that discussion. Uh, one of the common comments that we got, though, is that the discussion left a little bit to be desired. And Common comments? Wow. What did I say? You said common comments. It's, oh. a, it's, a, it's a fine phrase. It just sounded funny. Yeah, a common comment. Well, one of those common comments is that uh, it left a little bit to be desired. Uh, we didn't get into it in the depth that uh, would have been appreciated. And you know what? I think we agree with that. Uh, we did not dive deeply into it. We just kind of scratched the surface of it. And so we thought it would be good to have a more fuller discussion about that. And to help us facilitate that discussion, we brought Austin Brown onto the show to discuss it. And that's the interview that we're going to play for you today. Austin Brown is the author of the book, A Boisterously Reformed Polemic Against Limited Atonement. So that kind of shows you where he's coming from. His cards are on the table right at the get-go. Uh, but we just have a fuller discussion about the topic of limited atonement, some of the issues that, uh, that we have, problems that we have with that uh, doctrine, and hoping to have better discussions about it as we move forward. So, yeah, hope this is a good, helpful listen for y'all. I had a good time. You've, you've read his book. You used it yes. for one of your uh, seminary papers mm -hmm. and uh i don't own the book maybe i'll win it through our giveaway yeah maybe so huh that would be hilarious well that there's a little hint there we are doing a giveaway of this book the details of that are going to be in the description uh, but one lucky winner will win a copy of austin brown's book maybe if i win it that you can give me a cake with my uh, picture of my face on it that says it could only be you it can only be you like that scene from The Office. All right. Yes. I, I'm sorry. I'm derailing us. No. Well, we're not going to delay it any longer. Without any further ado, after the music will be our interview with Austin Brown. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Austin Brown is a ruling elder in the PCA and lives in Pensacola, Florida. He's the author of Walking with the Mailman, The Case for Utter Hopelessness, Why Atheism Leads to Unyielding Despair, and the book that prompted our discussion today, A Boisterously Reformed Polemic Against Limited Atonement. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. That's a mouthful, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Well, I have to say that when I first saw that title, that was like, I cannot not buy a book with a title like that. Like that well, that's just well, a book you, you have to purchase. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because I have received 
no small pushback from some of my strictly, you know, particularistic brethren over that title. What do you mean you are reformed and you don't hold to the limited atonement? So, as you can imagine, I've, I've suffered whips and stones and everything else over that. Well, let's begin to lay some of that groundwork as, as we start uh, talking about some of these issues and the topic of the book. How would you describe, and we'll try to keep this kind of relatively brief as we it can expand it as we go on, but the traditional Calvinistic view of limited atonement? Yeah, if you listen to voices like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, uh, Piper, you, you just go down the list with James White, right? The, the, the major players today who would uh, espouse this view, they're going to teach fundamentally that Christ suffered the punishment due the sins of the elect alone. That, if you're really going to boil limited atonement down to one idea, it's the question, for whose sins did Christ suffer, merit, or satisfy, you know, in his um, atoning death? Uh, advocates of limited atonement or of the strict variety, I would say, um, answer that question, the elect alone. And a classically moderate Calvinist like myself would say, no, all men. Well, as you begin to break into that difference, mm -hmm. and you, you you just use that, you describe yourself as a moderate Calvinist. Is that what you said? But you could call it a. If I say a classical Calvinist, people are going to be, "What are you talking about? We know that Calvin held to one particular view, and that's it." So I call myself. You can call me a. I mean, historically, some people would call me a hypothetical universalist. I hate that term, but mm. it was you know it was around. I prefer classical Calvinist, but if you want to call me a moderate Calvinist, I mean, fine. Nomenclature, it's like, you know, whatever. I'm not going to throw a tantrum. That, that's what Norman Geisler called himself too, right? As a moderate Calvinist. See, that's so. the, the frustrating yeah. thing is, is like, yeah. well, I'm not, no, I'm not that. So I should. <laughs> so I'm a universal satisfactionist. How about that? <laughs> this is the thing when we try to get more precise, we end up with bigger mouthfuls, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then and then half the people are just confused at what you're trying to do anyway. So mm -hmm. yeah, so I would consider myself a classical Calvinist. Well, before we get into the text of Scripture, let's mm -hmm. spend a bit of time talking about the history of this doctrine of yeah. the atonement in the Calvinistic mm -hmm. context. In one of your YouTube videos that you made years ago, you drew a distinction between Amaraldianism yeah. uh, and hypothetical universalism yeah. and four-point Calvinism. Yes. So is there just any short and easy way to explain those distinctions, even as we were just tossing around labels here a moment ago? Is, is there any way to say, here are the different views you can take while being Calvinistic to an extent but not accepting limited <clears throat> atonement? Yeah, so that original question, for whose sins did Christ suffer? All three of those camps, and even some other camps that you could add to it, are all going to say that Christ suffered for the sins of all men. And when they say all men, they actually mean all men. They don't mean all kinds of men, all men without distinction. They mean all men without exception. So then you get into the weeds of, well, so what does Moise Amaro teach, Amaraldianism? Look, the short and sweet way to say that, and this is going to be too simplistic, but here, you know, here we go. He, he's going to tinker with the order of decrees. All right. That's kind of his, what he's going to do. And either you're into doing that or you're not. 
a four-point Calvinist as opposed to a hypothetical universalist, I don't it just depends what they're going for. Because someone like John Davenant or James Usher, who were connected with the Council of Dort, they are going to very clearly say that Christ paid an objective price for the sins of all men, while also saying that the atonement is efficacious for the elect, also meaning that Christ purchased all the to-be-applied blessings like faith and repentance and things like that. Now, if a four-point Calvinist affirms that, then I'm, I'm going to just say, well, they're actually a hypothetical universalist, or if you will, a five-point Calvinist, because to the sh shock of many people, I mean, the tulip supposedly comes from the five heads of Dort, correct? But if you read the second head on the atonement of Christ, Dort allowed for both high Calvinists or strict particularists or advocates of limited atonement, and they also allowed for classically moderate Calvinists or um, hypothetical universalists, or if you will, four-point Calvinists, understood in, in a certain way. So, you know, I know, I know you men have said you're four-point Calvinists, so I guess my question is, is, do you, you know, have you read the second head of doctrine at Dort, and is there anything that you disagree with there? First question, no. Mm -hmm. Second question, I don't know, because the okay. first question is no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was actually reading through uh, some of the, the articles of Dort today. I didn't get through all of it, but mm -hmm. I, I was reading through some of those today and just kind of weighing the different things in my mind. So I haven't get, gotten through. I don't think I've gotten uh, far enough down to yeah. uh, to read it all. But Fair, fair enough. I mean, <laughs> it is a, a fairly obscure document in terms of Christendom. But here's what I would here's what I would challenge. While I understand why people call themselves four-point Calvinists, they you may not have to call yourself that because if you can agree with the second head of Dort, then in a very real sense you're a five-point Calvinist. What the strict particularists or high Calvinists have done is hijacked that and made it supposedly to only advocate their view. And hence, people who disagree with that think they have to lose that point. But I would say historically, that absolutely was not the case. You can you can look at monumental figures who held that Christ paid a sufficient price for the sins of all men and happily subscribed to Dort. Well, we want to get to the Synod of Dort here in a moment. A um, mm -hmm. couple clarifying questions before we go back there. Mm -hmm. uh, you warned us that it would be a little too simplistic when you were talking about Amaraldianism, yes. uh, where you just gave the idea about moving, tinkering with the decrees. Yes. Could you expand on that just a little bit? How, what do the decrees have to do with how you view the atonement? Yeah, see, now, to be, if I can put my cards on the table, I am. I would point people to Dr. Alan Clifford. He's an expert in the area of Amaraldianism. I'm a glancing, um, intrigued party, hmm. you know, meaning I don't, I want to be careful because I've read some secondary sources on it and I've read a little bit of his primary sources. So I'm, I'm loath to say too much about his view because I don't know that I'm sufficiently educated in the area to do so. That being said, I mean, these are some of these things are going to be getting into issues over uh, the weeds of infralapsarianism, 
supralapsarianism, you know, did God first decree to save all men and then decree? I mean, someone someone may find those conversations helpful, but if I'm perfectly honest, I, I think we can just sidestep all of that and just go to clear text and just let God work out the math of how decrees work, because I have no idea how a timeless, omniscient being orders things exactly. I think it's just a little presumptuous for human beings to think they can lay, nail all this down, even if it's a logical ordering. Well, um, another point of maybe clarification that can help frame the conversation as we go back to Dort, mm -hmm. it seems like the the massive, obvious bridge between the high Calvinism then or the strict particular five-point mm -hmm. Calvinism then and now mm -hmm. is John Owen. Yeah. So could you describe how John Owen's thought and his argument has really shaped this conversation as it leads into today? Yeah. And and someone even someone might ask, well, where where did this where did this start? I mean, there was a monk, his name is escaping, Gottschalk or something like that, back in the eight hundreds. He was like the first guy to really come along and propose this. And then it was pretty he was that was roundly condemned so far as I understand. I haven't read the primary sources. And then you come up, you know, to Calvin and this guy by the name of Jacob Arminianus, and, you know, and they're having their disputes. And then Beza comes along and Piscator. And I would argue, and others have, that Piscator and Beza and those in their train overly systematized. And they went beyond Calvin and, and what I would say would be the biblical balance of the scriptures and they created a new line of thought that John Owen followed in those footsteps and wrote, as you know, the famous book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is, I mean, okay, a fine book on many levels. But for him, it was there's an absurdity to saying at the core that Christ died for the sins of all men. Because in his mind, it would necessitate that all men have to be saved because there is a collapse of, I would say, redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Those two have to be coordinate because Christ and God and the covenant of redemption, the mediator, you know, the Christ as mediator is working basically solely and exclusively and in any kind of atoning sense only for the elect and everything works out of that. And so with those convictions in place, he will then labor to explain the universalistic text that you find in the Bible in a way that would try to comport with that. If you find that persuasive, welcome to the Owenian party. You're a strict particularist. <laughs> if you don't, welcome to the party. You are, well, siding with the vast majority of Christendom. And and perhaps if you're convinced by Owen, you would even write a book titled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. John Murray, fantastic. But, uh, you know, even the giants have to air now and then, right? Yeah. Well, as we're kind of sketching a little bit of the historical picture, you mentioned the Synod of Dort a little while ago. Uh, can yeah. you just give us a little bit more bit of the historical picture, even leading up to Dort and some of the parties at play? Because, uh, again, in conversations I've had with people, a lot of strict particulars do appeal to 
Dort yeah. as yeah. like, oh, this settles the issue. We are, you know, the five point Calvinism, et cetera. And yet in your book, and then even as you've expressed here in this interview, you say, well, there, it actually allows for both both people to come to the table and sign the same document. Yes. Trace that out a little bit for us. Give us some of the historical picture and how can both positions sign on to that document? Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of history that I'm not aware of. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an expert in this area, but I would point people to, um, you can get article, some, some excellent articles that I think you can trust. And one of them is by a strict particularist. So it's not like it's in party history here going on, but his name is Lee Gaddis. Um, it's, I think it's entitled Shades of Opinion in Calvinism. Uh, it's primarily looking at Westminster, but he backs up and looks at Dort as well. Fantastic articles. Uh, and uh, Dr. Michael Lynch, he has done some fantastic work in this area. You can get the articles online for free. He's also done some lectures. So, And um, actually, Dr. Dr. Uh, David Allen, uh, The Extent of the Atonement, he has a large... I mean, that thing is like 1,200 pages long. He looks yeah, it weighs about 15 pounds. <laughs> yeah. I would say those are, you know, if somebody's interested in getting into the details, I would point people principally to those. Um, but what I would want to stress in this context is if anyone listening to this is in any doubt that there were shades of opinion on this issue, I would just encourage them to look at, if no other figure, John Davenant, you know, uh, a, a bishop of renown at that time, who wrote a very careful treatise, and my goodness, the title of it is escaping me right now. It's so funny how, you know, when you're when you're knee deep in something and you're writing on it and you literally get away from it for like six months, it's like, how, why is the human memory so bad sometimes? But here I am, I can't, I can't quite remember. Um, I think it's a dissertation on the death of Christ. Well, anyway, John Davenant wrote a wonderful treatise on this that is unmistakably defending the idea that Christ died sufficiently for the sins of all and that he died efficaciously for the elect. And you can see that with Usher and other different figures. So when these, when Dort came together to basically answer the remonstrance, the Arminians, <clears throat> lo and behold, not all Calvinists were completely agreed on this point and other points for that matter. And so they had to work through these things. And I would encourage anybody to go to the second head of Dort, read it. I don't have it in front of me, but there are a few statements that are so unquestionably phrased in such a way to accommodate those who would hold to my view, our view, I should say, and uh, those who would be of a more high Calvinist or strict uh, camp. Um, it's like it'll speak in terms of his sacrifice was sufficiently abundant to expiate the sins of the whole world. Or it'll talk about when people are rejecting the gospel, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, when they reject the gospel, it's not due to any insufficiency of the work of Christ, but should be wholly imputed to them for rejecting such. You know, and that kind of language is, I would say, very fascinating. And nowhere does it say that Christ died only 
of the sins of the elect. It doesn't say it. Well, the the work you were referring to is titled A Dissertation on the Death of Christ. John Davenant. It's yeah. his last name is Dave N A N T, if anyone yeah. is interested in that. So Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a it's it's a remarkable read and um really incredible scholarship. And it gives you a window into the level of thinking back then. It really is Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun, right? There's these debates have been going on for a long time, and people far smarter than myself have pretty much worked out these details. It's just a new generation and a new time to uh, uh, spar, right? Well, speaking of that, sparring, in our experience, Calvinists seem to get more fired up about the L in mm. TULIP than any of other of the points of Calvinism. Yeah, uh, Have you found that to be true for you as well, as far as five-pointers are most passionate about that central point. And I'm curious how much covenant theology as a whole plays into that hmm. as we think about Christ as the second Adam and those who hold to a more covenant view or covenantal view, seeing Christ uh, fulfilling what Adam couldn't do, mm -hmm. um, how, how all of that was for the elect alone, if covenant theology plays into it. I'm going to say something cheeky by way of response to the first part. We I welcome think, that. I think they get particularly defensive because they know it's a weak point. Mm. I think they know it. I think they sense it. And I think they know they're out on a tight wire trying to go between the buildings. Because the reality is, is nowhere in the scripture does it ever say that Christ died only for the sins of the elect but you have multiple texts that seem to say the exact opposite. So from the very start, you have an uphill battle. Now, that being said, I want to be as courteous and as fair as possible. What they're zealous for is actually, it's good and it's understandable, because here's the fundamental logic of why they're zealous on this point. They don't want Christ wasting his atoning blood. They don't want to say that if Christ substitutes for someone's sins, that person can end up in hell. The logic is such in their mind that it would be dishonoring to God. It would be unjust for God to have someone whose sins are punished in Christ to end up in hell. So what they're zealous about is commendable. It's the justice and holiness of God. And you go, okay. Amen and amen to that. I, I'm all for us uphold the justice of God. In terms of covenant theology, yeah, sure, of course, that, that plays a part, but it, but it need not play a part as presumably, I mean, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that you guys would say you're dispensation, dispensational and you don't, you don't hold to the L, but you might still hold to what, Dort taught, and like I myself would hold to what Dort taught, and so it there isn't a necessary connection, but yes, I would say there is a there's a um, a glancing uh, connection because, I, but if I'm honest, I, I think it's going to be rooted more in a logical consistency because in their minds, it's if a man's totally depraved and he's unconditionally elected, then Christ is only going to come for that one to irresistibly draw and cause them to persevere. 
it's in their minds, all five of those things have to hold together in their conception of things. Um, well, anyway, I'm long-winded, but that's, that's you know, I hope I'm not skirting your, skirting, skirting well, your question. Well, let me just present it to you as I've heard it and then just see how you respond. Cause you are a covenantalist, you're a Presbyterian. So yeah. you have a covenantal view as opposed to a dispensational view. Mm-hmm. And what I've heard perhaps most recently, uh, and most strongly would be from Sproul, but I've seen it in other voices throughout history mm-hmm. that ties Christ's work for the elect, not just to the atonement, but mm. for that too, is vicarious law keeping for the elect. Right. That that Christ vicariously kept the law, and his atoning work in that sense actually began from the moment he was born. Uh, right. That he never sinned. I mean, that's like kind of the way. Obedience, as it were, an act of obedience. Right. That's how Sproul, uh, at least, has has framed it. And again, there are some others, and I don't remember who I had read in church history, sure. but I definitely remember reading Sproul. And so, um, you know, the question I think in my mind then becomes if you're going to uphold that he vicariously kept the law mm-hmm. for the elect, wouldn't it make sense then that he too died for the elect and mm-hmm. all that he did in life and in death, his total work mm-hmm. was on behalf of the elect? Yeah, exactly. And well, and I guess I would I would ask you, because I don't doubt that you would disagree. You would say that Christ fulfilled the law so that he could offer a perfect sacrifice on behalf of humanity, correct? Well, um, yes, but not only that. I mean, he obviously, mm-hmm. Christ oh, sure. is higher than the law. Uh, yes. and so his right. his entire life showed his spotlessness, yes. not just because he kept the law that was given through Moses, right. but because uh, he loved his enemies and washed the disciples' feet and all of that yes. too. So. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, amen and amen. So, yeah, there again, I think it's only going to be natural for people, you know, if you're covenantal, you're going to connect these things to covenantal ideas. But I still would hang the hat primarily on the idea that, like in R.C. Sproul's mind or others, if Christ fulfilled the law and died in the place of person X, then person X must be saved. They must be brought to salvation. That that is the that's the linchpin, and you know obviously people are going to go to Romans five, and um, you know people are going to have different opinions about. I mean Romans finds that five is a, a tricky passage, I think by anyone's estimation. So yeah, I think you're right, and I want to agree, but I would want to say that I think it need not be so. Well, as we start moving into want to discuss maybe some particular biblical texts. Um, mm-hmm. Let's just did, did for a moment. Unintended mm-hmm. or not intended, particular <laughs> biblical text. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's steel man the argument for a minute. Yeah. Okay, we're, we, all of us, th- all three here would deny the strict particulars understanding of limited atonement. Yeah. Well, if we were to steel man the argument, say, what is the best argument that uh, strict particulars could bring to the table what would be that argument, and uh, why is it? Um, I guess we guess a follow up question to that would be why does that argument still fail? Yeah, I mean the one. I mean, well, I'd be curious. I I have one in my mind, and I promise I won't change it. But I'm curious, which one do you think it is? I don't mean to turn the question around, but I'm curious what you what you guys think in your experience because I think there is pretty one pretty clear one. 
Well, the the um, the one that is always to me it, it gets harped on, and the, the logic is difficult to wrestle with is John Owen's logical argumentation. The trilemma. Yes. Yeah. That, yes, that's, that's it. That's the one. Which yeah. which isn't a scriptural argument. I mean, he's not exegeting scripture. It is more of a philosophical yeah. trap, essentially. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because scripturally, wh what I would say is the strength of the position is to notice that the Bible does affirm that I lay down my life for the sheep, that there is an mm -hmm. emphasis on Christ lying, laying down his life with some kind of special emphasis for the elect. I think you see that in John 10. I think you see it in John 17. You know, Christ loved, you know, you love your wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians. You know, there are texts that clearly point at least towards some sphere of particular, you know, particularization. Acts 20 with the Ephesian elders, uh, yes. the church he purchased with his own blood. Yes. So it's not like these ideas are coming out of a vacuum. There's something there, and there's a certain logic that you can then, I think, move into in co combination with Tulip's larger logic. It's like, well, I mean, look, if, 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 if they're elect, then Christ is going to come for the elect. And so you work it out, and then you finally siphon down to Owen's trilemma, which is, you know, roughly, if Christ died for the sins of all men, then unbelief is one of those sins so therefore they must be brought to faith I mean, it would and it would be likewise absurd to say that he died for some of the sins of some men he needed to die for therefore given those two all the sins of some men that's that's the argument and it has um you know in the face of things some teeth i mean it's not like a dumb argument well, it's it's the argument that if if the premises are true, then the mm -hmm. conclusion logically follows, right? Like like that's mm -hmm. that's the step you're walking through. So the the challenging part then is, well, how do we evaluate the yes. veracity of the premises? Yes, yes. And so to look at that one in particular, now I would like to at one point, um, I actually think some of the the best, the simplest and clearest arguments have to do with sufficiency. So I'm hoping that we can touch on that. But in order to dismantle, well, that's a very pejorative term, in order to reveal that there's some weaknesses to this argument, I think a person first needs to recognize that the, the model, the Owenian model is predicated upon a commercialistic or pecuniary understanding of the atonement okay and that and you go what what does that mean it's like it's so much suffering for so many sins when i would advocate a more judicial or penal substitution which is you know you often hear people say it's the infinite value of christ's death and it is it's infinite value made on behalf of sin period so it's not like you can slice this up, like there's, <laughs> you can slice up the sin, as it were, into particulars. And this is going to go down a rabbit hole that someone would need to explore further. But this, that's, that's the more obscure, difficult one to go down. But let's just do a simpler one. If God, by his own sovereign choice, 
decides to affix to the offer of salvation a condition, then it is his prerogative to not grant what he's promised if a person doesn't fulfill the condition. And you ask, well, what is the condition? To repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not meet those conditions, you justly suffer for your sins, even though Christ has suffered a just, justly uh, punishment due to the sins of that person because of a condition. Um, someone can, you know, there's a lot of different quibbling we can do over this, but at the end of the day, I'm convinced that those two points will show that there are serious cracks in the Owenian argument. So let me revisit a comment you made a few minutes ago where you said there is no text that says that Christ died only for the elect, but we have other passages that seemingly expand the group for whom Jesus died. Uh, are you saying, just to clarify, mm -hmm. that you have not come across a passage uh, in the text of Scripture where you get stuck and say, boy, it really seems like that is advocating for limited atonement, and you struggle with it in that way. There's there's not a passage that's done that for you? I mean, along the way in this journey, I have wrestled with texts, but I, I can confidently say there's, so far as I understand it, everyone has agreed that there is not a smoking gun text, right? There's not one where you would expect there to be something somewhere that says, that narrows it down exclusively. Like, like we've said, there are texts that have particularity and emphasis for a particular group, but not exclusivity. And that's the key thing. Because if someone could point me to, you know, something in First Timothy or John or whatever, where it says, Christ came to die only for the sins of the elect, well, that would be extraordinarily powerful and persuasive. But, I mean, I'm not aware of any others. I mean, are you aware of anything that smells like that? Well, we, we wouldn't have a debate if we had that, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, right. That's, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. It would just yeah. be done deal. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <clears throat> as, we, as we dwell on this point a little bit, I think this might be an appropriate time to uh, talk through how some of the strong five-point Calvinists, and again, these terms, that they mean yeah. different things to different people, yeah. but um, the particularists, if we're saying, look, there's not a there's not a text of scripture where we are confronted with particularism as they define it, mm -hmm. but there are passages like God desires all men to be saved. First mm -hmm. Timothy two, uh, Titus mm -hmm. chapter two, we see some of the same themes. Mm -hmm. You can even look at passages like Second Peter three nine and yep. and others where there's this kind of all language that's being used. So. Uh, can you give us an overview of how they handle those when they get into the two wills of God argument and also the classes of people argument, the uh, distinction versus exception type yes. view of those? Could you just give a, a blanket overview of all that? Yeah, and the distinction one's frustrating to me because, you know, as for the former question, the two wills, I think you'll I think you'll find if you read Burkhoff, John Frame, you, you go down through different reform theologians, even scholastic ones, most of them, because the scriptures pretty much force our hand, right? We have to make some kind of distinction 
in the will of God. And some people call that his will of decree and prescriptive will, you know, and, and okay, fine. Arminians often chide us for doing that, but I, I don't think, I don't think an honest wrestling with the text allows us to avoid doing it on some level. I mean, does God not want you um, to not want you to sin, but you, but you sin. So, I mean, yeah, we can't we can't avoid this on the simplest of levels, right? Even uh, yeah, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, the things yes. revealed belong to us; the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some sort of distinction between what is prescribed and what He alone knows and ordains and brings to pass in His good providence. So, yeah, yes, exactly. So, so that first one, I just would say, look, this is this is ground that all of us. This is a common ground that we're all going to make distinctions of some kind. The real sticking point, I think, is with this idea of all men without distinction. Because let's just make it clear, like you said, if if you have a text that says, um, you know, uh, Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. If all men sounds like what it sounds like, then it would include the non-elect. And then that would mean that Christ came in some kind of redemptive way, sacrificial way for the non-elect. And that would be a big no-no on there. That would be the smoking gun for them. So, therefore, they have to have some way of getting out from under this. Now, as you know, um, our good friend James White likes to... <laughs> Yeah, we go way back. We get coffee all the time. Yeah, and right. Our good friend Jim. Look, I I really do respect him, but my goodness, I get so frustrated on this sometimes. The idea is to say, well, when it says all men, it's talking about groups of men. So all men without, they will use this language, all men without distinction as opposed to exception. So it's not every individual person who ever existed, but it's groups of people like Jews and Gentiles. Now, I, you have to forgive my simplicity here, but if somebody says, not just Jews, but, just, but also Gentiles, I mean, last I checked, the math is that's everybody. So what they really mean is if you say all men, that word all is going to turn into the word some. Mm. And it's going to move, the all is going to move to kinds. So it's not, it's some men of every kind, as opposed to all men of every kind. See, you see the difference? It's very, very important. Once you see the sleight of hand, so they look at a text that says all men, and they go, oh, that's some men of all kinds. Not just Germans, not just Canadians, not just Americans. But it's some men of all kinds. And you go, oh, no, no, no. It says all men. The all is modifying the men. So let's keep the all there. And if you want to talk about kinds, yes, it's all kinds. All men of every kind. And if you think about it, groups are fundamentally made up of individuals. You know, if I said Christ didn't just come to die for Canadians, but he came to die for Americans, I don't think you could then walk into Canada and go, oh, I found one. I found a Canadian for whom Christ didn't die. It just doesn't. <laughs> Groups are made up of individuals. And if you name the group, you're including the individuals. So 
you know, that's a long way of just saying, I really, really do. And I mean this with all due respect, it's theological sleight of hand. And it doesn't work with the text across the board. Yes, you can find some text where all doesn't mean all without absolute except, exception, but there are plenty that do. Well, we, we want to get into you stating positively your view and talking about sufficiency as you want to talk about. But I, I do want to ask you this still thinking on how they they handle texts. Yeah. Um, one that is particularly difficult for me, if I can, again, be a little punny with particular, uh, is Second Peter 2.1, where it specifically talks yeah. about false teachers who were bought by the master. Hmm. How do they handle that? Because you can't say all kinds, two wills of God. You can't go any of those directions with that verse. It says there are false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, Mm -hmm. even denying the master who bought them. Mm -hmm. What what do they do with the verse like that? Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways they go. I think I've counted four or five different ones. Um. Some are just going to go to the idea that, well, it's like a master-slave relationship, and it's not really talking about redemption. And you go, come on, come on, man. I mean, is there is there any way Peter or Paul or anybody could have said something clearly enough? Sometimes you just have to get to a point, and you just go, you tell me how they would have to say it to convince you. Uh-huh. I mean, if, if if it's like, I don't believe in limited atonement, and you should believe this, well, we're not going to we're not going to have a text like that. Or if it's like, I, Christ died for all men, meaning every last person, and he shed his blood for all their sins. I mean, they're, okay, we're just not going to have a verse like they weren't, they weren't interacting with it. So you're going to have some people do that with Second Peter 2, 1. They're going to, maybe some of them are going to understand it, like the idea of um, um, how they bought them out of Egypt you know, they, he's like, he he took them out in a redemptive kind of covenantal sense like that, or, um, Greg Bonson or Dr. Um, Dr. Schreiner, they're going to go with more of a phenomenological view, which is to say that it seemed like these people were bought by Christ. In other words, Peter is adopting the presumption that these people were born again and therefore bought but in fact, we're not. And, you know, in order to, and I think in order to show that that's not the case, you know, I would just direct people to my book or other works like it, where you kind of walk through the text of Second Peter, and I just, that isn't the natural, you're not going to come to that conclusion unless you have a pretty strong agenda driving your exegesis, is, is, is the bottom line is what I would say. Yeah, there's... Do you guys agree with that? I would. Uh, it, it it ruffles feathers when you say it, though, right? It does. <laughs> yeah. Because well, people there's, they want to admit that. There's certainly no natural <clears throat> reading there that gets you to a particularist, Calvinistic, high Calvinism view. I mean, there, you would have yeah. to read that text unnaturally to still hold to the five-point Calvinism, I think. Yeah, well, and, and let me say this and see what you guys think. If you if you try to conceptualize this debate, the high Calvinist or strict particularist is going to have 
a set of passages that seem to imply particularity. They're also going to have a set of arguments like Owen's trilemma and substitution and these kinds of things that in their minds seem to constrain them towards this particular view. So if those two seem unmovable to them, they therefore feel compelled when they come to these universalistic texts to try to find an escape hatch. That's the game we're playing. And it's, and it's not like it's a bad game. We all do it in different ways, right? The Father is greater than I, says Jesus. Well, as Trinitarians, we, we, we we're looking, quote-unquote, for an escape hatch. Like, well, how can we understand that in light of, you know, the Muslim who goes, see, he wasn't God, right? Mm -hmm. So we all do this. So I'm not chiding them for that. But if you don't think that the particularistic texts force you to say that Christ died only— and if you see gaps in their arguments, and if you can bring in other arguments that seem to compel you towards understanding the universalistic texts and their plainest sense, then you're going to feel comfortable, even compelled to go a different route. So th to me, that's, that is the debate summed up in a nutshell. Yes. And I, and I'm not trying to, um, to say, hey, we just need to take this one verse and look at it in a vacuum and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we get all of our theology out of that. Um, but, yeah, more like what you were just describing there at the end, the plain sense. Mm -hmm. In the context of Peter, I don't understand yeah. how uh, we can walk away with the plain sense reading being that Jesus in no way acted redemptively toward even false teachers. I mean, that's just, that's right. what he's saying. Um, I mean, bought sure sounds like bought. And we know that they don't repent because Peter will say the blackest darkness is reserved for them. So yes. you can't find an escape hatch for that. Like, well, maybe they were elect, but they just weren't hadn't been brought to faith yet. And, and interestingly, mu much of what you described is the same sort of contention that we dispensationalists have with covenantalists. But that's another podcast yeah, episode. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. May your tribe increase. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, even as we continue to think about different uh, biblical texts, you know, it, you know, we, we're examining a couple of texts that, okay, we think these are problem passages for a particular's viewpoint. Even if we're to swing it around the other way a little bit, you know, you mentioned, oh, there's no smoking gun for the particulars that that just indicates, hey, yeah, Christ only mm -hmm. died for the elect and the elect alone. One passage that I have brought up that did come to my mind in that regard would be uh, Mark ten forty five. Christ came to not to serve or not, not to be served, mm. but to serve and yeah. to give his life as a ransom for many, many. Yeah. not for everyone, but just for many. Yeah, How sure. would you respond to that in a particular sense? Romans five also, right? I mean, you get that same kind of language in Romans five, where many and all. Yeah. Well, and look on the Romans five. I, I mean. Let me just put it this way. I am entirely open to being taught on that. I've wrestled with that passage, and I, I, I'm just very humble on that passage. I can't—I just think there's, there's difficulties every direction you go, and I don't know that I've—you know, it's like I understand what Paul's saying— but it's just maybe if you try to trace out so, so what seems to be some of the implications, I have a hard time understanding quite where he's going. So, like I said, I'm I'm open. Um, if you guys have a, if you guys can shed light on that, I am 
all ears. I, I tell you that, but yeah, the mini, yeah, there's, there's other things like that. Um, uh, not offering a sacrifice or I can't remember how it did it with the sons of Eli. There's different ones like that, but yeah, the mini, the, the, the sons mini. of Eli, that's the pastor of the old Testament, which interesting, uh, it says that the 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 sins of Eli, the sons of Eli, will never be atoned for. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So yes, there's going to be things um, of this nature. Now, the many, it doesn't. There again, it's going to be certain presuppositions that come to it. I mean, the many can just mean right. This you don't have to have it an exclusive many. It can just be the many universalistically. Um, I don't know Greek, and so I, you know, I don't know. Um, I can only trust what some people say about that, but that's apparently what it means. I mean, can you guys shed light on that? Do either one of you know Greek? Well, we can now. We can say whatever we want because the High Calvinists just shut off the interview when you said I don't know Greek. They now reject yeah, right. everything you've said. Yeah, and yeah. Na- now you can just let her fly. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what can I? What can I say? I'm being honest, and but I don't think that's a uh, I don't think that's a detriment. We have multiple good translations. We have good commentaries. I mean, I could say I know a little, but that just means I'm know enough to be dangerous. So there's no point in even saying that. Well, if you look up just to just to shed a little light, if you do look up that Greek word that is used for many, and you look up all, all the places where it's used, mm-hmm. it does it, it. The word is used in essentially two ways. One mm-hmm. to speak of many within a class. So there are some that are excluded from that, but there are other places where it seems pretty evident that it's used to speak of the entire class in kind of a, just a a colloquial way of saying all of them. So you think of, Oh, uh, do not worry about your life. Your life is worth more than many sparrows. Well, apparently there's a number of sparrows where my life isn't as worth as much of those sparrows, right? (laughs) Like the sparrows are worth more. Well, no, 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 that's, that's not the point. The point is expansive. Yes. I mean, right now I'm preaching in Second Corinthians 2, and the same word comes up. Uh, I believe it's the same. And he's it's actually translated majority in the NASB, hmm. um, but he's basically classifying the whole church taking action against a man who is divisive. And he says that it was a penalty that was put on this man by the majority, is how it's rendered there. Hmm. Um, so maybe we should render it that way. Christ died for the majority. Hmm. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Cause yes, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what I've, that's what I've heard. And then when you, you look at some cross references and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. In other words, I would call that a swinging door passage, depending on your theological persuasion, you're going to push on it. It's going to open that way, but it's not decisive mm-hmm. in and of itself. That's, that's how I would look at those. So, I mean, sure. If limited tome is correct. Yeah. You, that's probably the direction you're you're going to go. But if it's not, then it's going to go the other direction. Well, as we think about some of the practical implications of this, you know, I've I've had conversations with individuals, and we're you know we're talking about it, and then someone else comes along, and here's what we're discussing, and he's like, all right, I just before you suck me into this debate, just answer this one question: Why does it even matter? And there's mm-hmm. this question, like, okay, well, why why does it matter? Why is this important? Does this have implications for our evangelism, for how we uh, engage people with the gospel? Are there practical implications to understanding this one way or the other? Yes, absolutely. And sadly, not only are there implications, but there can be um, painful implications. 
some of them, in my experience, would include just the my deepest concern and desire with this issue is what I would say is a trajectory that we're seeing in more recent times towards a form of hyper Calvinism. The like not only is it just limited atonement, but it's connected to an unwillingness often an unwillingness to say that God desires the salvation of all people in any sense, or that God loves all people in any sense. Um, when you start falling into reductionistic Calvinism, it can start leading to some pretty awkward, lopsided ways of thinking that inevitably play out practically. And I've seen this the way people talk. I mean, I've been in Calvinistic churches for, um, I'm 46 now, uh, about 26 years. And uh, I can, I can testify that people will, like, there was a, there was a teaching elder one time who stood up in Sunday school class and he taught on John 3.16. At the end, his great conclusion was God does not love the world. Now, if you have a visitor in your midst who's reading the text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and then you have someone who is, I would argue, torturing the text and wrangling it around to where it says the exact opposite of what it says, that person is either going to say, I'm not smart enough to understand what's right before me, because here's a guy who's credentialed, and he's telling me it doesn't mean that. Or they're just going to get confused, or they're just going to buy into it, and then become, at some point, the cage staged Calvinist who's frothing at the mouth, and just clubbing people with these texts, making it a hobby horse to the nth degree. And if anyone thinks that isn't the case, I would merely invite you to go to online forums and try to talk about these things. <laughs> you will be shot in the face with a shotgun in almost <laughs> no time. <laughs> Basically. Well, isn't that interesting, though, how the you, you end up at a point where the, the, the emphasis upon teaching any particular text is not about what does this text say, but it's mm. about what does it not say? Exactly. Yes. Thank you. And then you're left with, well, how do we, how, how do we under, like, like to your point, how do we make sense of anything that we're reading in the scripture? If any given text can just be, well, we're just trying to find what it doesn't say and only make it say what supports my theology. Yeah. And, and another implication is this is, um, you know, I have a chapter in the book where it's, it's a plus B, I call it. Because so often, I think there's a rule in Scripture that if you find a group of texts, let's call them A, and they convey pretty uniformly and pretty clearly a certain concept, and then you have group B that pretty uniformly and pretty convincingly and plainly teach something else, often the game in theology is to take prioritize A and subsume B under it, or prioritize B and subsume A under it, right? Take Let's take the warning passages, mm, and people yeah. will debate, can a Christian lose their salvation? Now, if anything should be obvious that the warnings are there to have some kind of punch, 
And so if, if you're, if your goal, as you've just, you know, you hopefully said, if your goal is just to explain those away, then you're like, clearly Paul, Peter, John, they, they thought there was a pastoral need for these things. And therefore, if there's a pastoral need, they have a use and a good, holy mm -hmm. use. And so we ought not approach something like that and go, well, I guess we just figure out a way to brush that, you know, sweep that under the rug. And conversely, we shouldn't maybe live in complete trepidation and fear thinking that we lost our salvation every day if we thought something crude, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to hold like the divinity and the humanity of Christ, A and B, we have to, we have to like, okay, hold them both. Even if it results in mystery, I would rather a person go, you know what? I don't really know how to make these two fit together. I don't know what the theological glue is, but I feel compelled because I love God and love his word. I'm going to uphold these. And maybe somebody will come along someday and help me see how these two go together. But in the meantime, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about his personal sanctification and his motivation being lest he himself be disqualified. Yes. He wasn't talking about qualifications for apostleship. He was talking about his personal walk with the Lord and his personal salvation. And I thought Atikimos, uh, right? Is that the Greek? I think it's the Greek. I'd have to I'd have to check that. <clears throat> I think it's I think it's Atikimos. So there you go. See, I know something. There you go. Yeah, you are <laughs> dangerous. Uh well, I think in that was probably when I preached through First Corinthians. Uh, that was probably the most helpful place with Tom Schreiner's commentary, mm -hmm. where Schreiner weighed in on that reality of there's a tension there that we have to embrace. We yes. Paul didn't write that just to fill space in the parchment. Yes. He he meant for it to have a bite or a punch, as you said. That there was there's meaning behind that. And we can't just say, well, we know that that can't be true. And so he must have just meant it in a flowery speech, sort of yes. put a bow on the whole passage type of way. No, I don't think that's it. Mm. We have to kind of embrace both and live in the tension. Yeah, well said. And that's a great example. Yes, exactly. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, there, there's certainly another practical implication. I'll just say one more. Um, if you're like myself, looking to become ordained in a denomination, you can quit that largely upholds limited atonement. You can quickly feel like a Daniel, and a, <laughs> or I should say, let me put it this way. Let me do the opposite. You can quickly feel like a lion in a den of Daniels, <laughs> right? And trying to get reasonable men to just hear the history is sometimes so shockingly difficult. Well, let me say it like this. When Paul went to the Bereans, Luke records that they were of more noble character because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. I think our willingness to listen to someone, even if you think they're kind of crazy, your willingness to engage someone and listen carefully what they have to say, be able to explain their view to their own satisfaction and hear their scriptural arguments, I think that requires a certain nobility of character. 
And if you're not willing to do that, it's either because you're defensive or you haven't learned how to exercise self-control or to show love in a winsome kind of way. And I'm sad to say that I've seen many men with credentials next to their name entirely unwilling to do that to such a degree that it, it honestly has essentially brought me to, to tears before because is it possible, I would say to my strict strict particulars, is it possible you can look at other people and see that they're confused on issues? You believe that with all your heart. But is it possible that on this issue, that at least the history isn't entirely as you think it is? That's all I'm saying. Maybe your position is right. But I would like you to at least look at Charles Hodge, John Calvin, Edwards, Dabney, Davenant, Baxter. Just look at them and see if they're saying exactly what you're saying. They're not, objectively. And that should at least give a certain space then for conversation instead of just clubbing. Well, just to uh, put a little personal anecdote in the midst of that, the, the, the clubbing aspect of things was such a big turnoff for me as I was first being exposed to any level of Calvinistic doctrine at all. Hmm. that I was resistant to considering anything within hmm. any kind of Calvinistic system because, well, if this is where that theology leads, I want no hmm. part of it. Hmm. And so I was I avoided anything of Calvinism like the plague just hmm. because of uh, the way some people treated uh, and just, just got so passionate about the doctrine without having – uh, I don't know, a teacher's heart and a teacher's spirit about just, okay, even if if you are correct, well, there's a, there's got to be room for gentle instruction in the midst yes. of this. And I, it, it took me a long time before I was willing to just sit down and say, and it was never an individual Calvinist that convinced me of anything. It was just simply opening the scriptures and studying them out with an open mind. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's something that's missing, uh, sadly, in many, and yeah. it's not just Calvinists, but it it happens a lot with Calvinists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's clearly a human nature thing, but there's a certain pride of place for the reform guy. And that's what concerns me, because if election teaches us anything, it's humbling. Right. Right. I mean, why in the world would God choose me to pull me out of the dark hole that I was in? Like, like that should make me the humblest person in the world. And yet, we often use that as a fulcrum for pride. And it's, um, and you know, and I say this, I'm throwing stones in my own house, you know, so I feel like I can state, state these things more strongly because maybe it'll shake one or two who are listening to this, or hopefully more, to just go, well, you know what, I don't like that guy and I don't really like what he's saying, but at least on that point, maybe I should pause and uh, think about this. If our knowledge is not attended by love, yes. we are in great danger. Yeah. Yes. Now, we've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about the different, uh, really a lot of it actually spent from the particular side answering different uh, mm -hmm. objections and things of that nature. We would be remiss if we did not make some time within this conversation to make a mm. positive case for, mm. well, how should we think about this? All right, we've got these different texts. How do we synthesize them? What is the most solid biblical argument in your view? How would you set that up? Yeah, so let's do, there's several of them, but um, let me do a thought experiment that having, I've used this with different people, and I've, I think I've finally figured out a way to formulate it 
such that people can go, hmm, okay, I, I see what you're doing there, and I don't know quite what to say. And so here's what I would do. And this is a philosophical and not an exegetical one. So let's imagine that uh, nobody, that there was a world where nobody is going to be saved. Christ isn't going to come. He never came. He's not going to do a vicarious death, no atoning sacrifice, nothing. There's no gospel. There's no nothing. Let's say there's a hundred people on this planet. Would it make any sense for you from another planet coming in and go, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? I mean, if there's no atonement, there's no gospel, there's no nothing, can we offer salvation to any of those people? Now, anybody being honest should say, well, no, no, if there's no, if there's no, without the, you know, without shedding the blood, there is no remission of sins. I mean, that's, that's about as straightforward as you get. Okay. So there's no gospel. There's no chance of salvation. There's no offer of salvation. There's nothing. So let's imagine now that you have 50, that Christ does come and he does die for 50 of them. Can you say to all 100 people sincerely that if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved? Now, if we just granted that if there was no sacrificial deaths for the 100, there's no gospel, there's no nothing, you can't offer them anything, then it still remains true for the 50. You have no universal gospel, technically speaking. There's nothing there to ground it. There's nothing there to legitimize it. All you can do as a strict particularist is fall back on, well, I don't know who is elect and who isn't elect, so I'm just going to pre preach indiscriminately. But, but please, okay, hear me, strict particularists, hear me. Your ignorance of who is elect and non-elect has nothing to do whatsoever with the logical problem that exists between limited expiation and a universal gospel offer. Those two, when set next to each other, create a logical incongruity that cannot be bridged on your own system. You have to fall back on something else to explain it. And there are other ways people try to do it, but to my dying day, I cannot be convinced that there's any way to ground a universal gospel offer, which I think is clearly biblical, with the idea that Christ only died for the sins of some people. And I would follow up by saying, you typically, strict particulars, will say that Christ's death is sufficient for all. And I would merely ask you, sufficient to do what? Are you telling me that Christ dying for Bill's sins, let's say Christ died for Bill, is his dying for Bill's sins somehow able to make John savable without him dying for John's sins? Because you're saying that it's sufficient for all. Let's just say there's two people on the planet, Bill and John. If Christ didn't die for John's sins, then in what possible sense could Christ's death be sufficient for him? If sufficiency means that there is the availability of salvation, 
if Christ didn't die for John's sins, he is in the same category as a demon, a non-died for, and there is no provision of, for salvation. There's nothing that can be genuinely offered and nothing that can be genuinely rejected. There's nothing there. So how in the world can Christ dying for Bill's sins help John and his sins, given their view? I don't think there's a coherent answer at all for that. Yeah, sufficiency basically loses any definition at that point. Uh, yes. So, well, where I have run into an issue, you know, I, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying, <clears throat> but within my own view, I kind of run into a bit of a snag with, well, then what was the purpose of, or the purposes rather, of Christ's atonement? Because it seems to me that there can't only be one purpose, uh, which, you know, the, the particular says there was one purpose. It's to, the secure, to secure the salvation of the elect. Done. Whereas... Oh, they would, to be fair, they would say that there are other, there are other effects, common grace. And if you're post-millennialist, you're going to say right. that God's going to transform the world. Right. So, the, the, you know, just to be but fair. The, um, but, but the benefactors... Um, are and the only people in view by definition were the elect because that's what limited the atonement. Right. Yeah. Anything in terms of yeah, atonement. Yes. Yes. And so, to me, that for our view, then if we're going to stop short of saying that, then there has to be more than one view because we agree. Mm. Yeah, he did secure the salvation of the elect. Mm -hmm. But then, what is he doing then toward the non-elect? What's this other purpose here that's floating around? Um, does Scripture give us multiple purposes? How do we articulate that? How do we settle that in our in our minds? Yeah, I'll, I want to hear what you think as well. I'll, I'll throw out one because there's there's like there's probably f at least three or four of them. Um, one, I would say, is if you just take John 3.16, if, if that text means what it sounds like it means, and I believe it does, exegetically, everything is compelling a person to say that God so loved, let's say, the totality of humanity. If for no other reason, the thing that makes Christianity glow with Beauty, well, I should say, one of the things that makes Christianity glow with beauty and splendor is the heart of God basically being the one to first reach out as a reconciler with rebels, with treasonous rebels. I mean, anytime you have um, a dispute between two parties, who's the one to initiate? That's always the difficult part, right? You're trying to, any kind of act of reconciliation, it's difficult to get one of the two sinners to do what they ought to do. But God's glove is so great, he shows the effulgence of it that he would actually send Christ for every last rebel who doesn't deserve it. And so, to answer this very succinctly, if you hold to a quote-unquote unlimited atonement as opposed to limited atonement, it shows, I think, more beautifully the character of God because I have everything that the Calvinist wants in terms of particularity. I'm not saying less than them. I'm saying more than them. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good answer. Um, 
you know, Ken, as he was writing his initial paper where he was introduced to your book, uh, he picked up your book as a resource there. Um, he included some of these thoughts. You probably pulled up your paper whenever I asked that question, didn't you, Ken? If I know you well enough, did you do that? I actually had pulled up my paper earlier, but ah. just now I pulled up the document by Bruce Ware. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what I was yeah. going to mention was, was Bruce yeah. Ware. He, he lists a few different reasons. And the one that to me makes the most sense for a, an additional purpose besides securing the salvation of the elect and to what you said. I mean, I think what you said was legitimate too, Austin, but to offer a genuine offer of salvation to the non-elect. If the atonement did not extend in any sense Mm -hmm. beyond the elect, then there is no sense in which the offer of salvation to the non-elect is genuine. And that, I think, is a provision that God made for us non-omniscient beings are very limit. We're very limited creatures, and yet we've been commissioned to take the gospel to the world, and we can do so with a genuine offer. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You want to add another one? Because you have your paper up there. Well, are you, have you interacted with Bruce Ware's work on this at all? The a, a little bit, yes. So, so it's he been, he it's been years though, so I'm a little foggy. But I know one of well, I'll, I don't want to take, I don't want to steal it from you. So go ahead, because I think it's worth saying. Well, he lists five. Um, so obviously, is the one that we would agree with particularists on. He died to secure salvation of the elect. Yep. But then there's more uh, limitless scope purpose, died for the purpose of paying the penalty for the sin of all people, making it possible for all mm-hmm. to, who believe to be saved. Mm-hmm. Related to that is the bona fide gospel offer uh, that mm-hmm. we just discussed. Um, one that I think is interesting is the just condemnation purchase. Christ yes. died for the purpose of providing an additional basis for condemnation for those who hear and reject the gospel. Absolutely. So that's pulled from like a John three eighteen, where it says yep. the reason why they're condemned is because they did not believe. Yeah, absolutely. And then the final and, part. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just. Do you want to comment on that, or I was just going to list the, the last, uh, the last. Because I know he, he has. Because the other, I know he has another dimension, and it's a, it's an eminently biblical one. Is is the cosmic dimension? Yes, does he, mm-hmm. he does mention that. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. the last one. The cosmic triumph purpose. Uh, the world. The. Uh, Oh, it's the, the passage from Colossians. Um, Colossians yeah. 2, reconciling all things to himself. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, things in heaven and things on earth. I mean, you talk about universal. I mean, Christ <laughs> won the victory, re, as it were, getting the rights, the kingly rights to repurpose reality. <laughs> that's amazing. It's amazing. I, I, I love that vision of the atonement, and we dare not lose it. Amen. Well, as we kind of bring this discussion a little bit to a close, uh, really just have one more question, and that's just as it relates to how we have this conversation with people and different parties disagreeing. Is there a way that you have found that we can have better conversations that maybe there's people you're engaging with someone, they start to get feisty? How can we steer a conversation in such a way that we can have healthier conversations without getting all tense and riled up about it? If I'm completely honest with you, I haven't found it. Mm. Um, remember the movie Groundhog's Day? Oh, yeah. I feel like the last 20 some years of my life have been Groundhog's Day on this issue. I've tried being extremely quiet and listening. I've been forceful. I've, I've tried just opening up, you know, Calvin opening up just different, all kinds of varieties. 
And rarely does any of them make any difference. Mm. And to the point where it can actually feel, look, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer here, sorry, but it can feel despairing because my feeling is as Christians, we of all people should be, we should exhibit the quality of character to be able to navigate these things in a winsome, careful way. But few are the people who can articulate my view or my concerns back to me to my own satisfaction or even care to. They usually just condemn and have no eyes or ears for this subject. So, but to answer your question, actually writing this book in kind of a playful, cheeky, but still pretty sharp way at times, um, I I have had the privilege of people writing me saying, thank you, you've changed my mind, or, hmm, that's interesting, I have to think about it more. So, mm. praise God, I'm thankful for that. If for no other reason, all I'm aiming for is more of a amiable relationship amongst the Reformed community, the Calvinistic community, there's no reason to shoot each other over this issue. And there's no reason to shoot our Arminian brothers unnecessarily either, right? I mean, yes, there can be real differences between Arminians, but I would rather have a thoughtful, biblically-minded Arminian than a frothy, hyper-Calvinist reform guy any day of the week. And if that turns some people off, I'm sorry, so be it. It's how I feel. What about, what about you? I mean, I, I mean, help me. You know, how, have you have you had any success? Well, Twitter is certainly not the answer. Twitter is not. <laughs> that's a dumpster fire. Honestly, you know, uh, having more studied it more just more recently and being uh, kind of wading into these waters a little bit more, um, I'm still kind of just getting my feet wet in terms of engaging yeah. people on this topic. Yeah. I will say that even just having read the book myself, there were several points where I was just literally laughing out loud at, <laughs> at the uh, use the word cheeky. That's that's a good word to describe it. Yeah. And I think that might be something that's that's helpful that way, just to bring a little bit of humor into it to where we don't feel like it's life and death. Yeah. You know, where we can recognize that, hey, look, uh, we are still brothers in Christ. And we can poke fun at each other a little bit and enjoy yeah. the ribbing without it being like, well, if you deny this, well, then you're going to hell. And I'm sure there might right. be some individuals out there that affirm that, and there's probably no help for that oh, conversation. I, people, people have told me I'm going to hell because of this. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, especially since you are in Presbyterian circles, Austin, if, you know, what, what you just said, I'd rather have a balanced, thoughtful, and loving Arminian converse, conversation with an Arminian than with, um, you know, having a conversation with a frothy Calvinist. Hmm. I'm wondering how much people viewing Calvinism as the gospel has hmm. uh, played into this, or at least hmm. seeing their conversion hmm. to Calvinism as like a second born again experience yeah. and really elevating that doctrine to a primary position. Yeah. How yeah. Much when that did you ask Texas? Calvin into your heart? Exactly. Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, very well said. I mean, you 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 asked the question so well it almost answers itself. Because, yeah, that's exactly right. It's 
There's a pride of place, like, look at me. I'm the enlightened one. My Roman Catholic, all these Roman Catholics, all these people, they're all wrong. I have figured it out. I'm at the pinnacle, and therefore I'm above reproach intellectually. And there's no room for growth. Now, that's an overstatement to some degree. But it's a, it's, but there's enough truth there that I feel like I can say it, and it ought not be so. And um, yeah, I, I really do lament this, and I, I've been praying that God would bring this surface, this this issue to the surface, and that the church would somehow, after 500 years of wrangling. <laughs> Be able to find more unanimity on this issue because I think we can, even with the differences. And that's I'm aiming low. I'm not saying everybody has to change their mind, though I would like them to. But as a realist, I like look. We're can we just be unified together such that we're not condemning, um, separating from, excluding certainly not excluding from the Lord's table, or not allowing people to have hands laid on them to be ordained, these kinds of things. If we can find that kind of unanimity and under, have a good taxonomy of the positions such that we can go, you're a high Calvinist? Hey, I'm a classical moderate? Whatever, if you prefer hypothetical universe, fine, that's, a, that's okay. But we, in the same way that if you've got a pre-mill, an amill, and a post-mill, I mean, yeah, those are real differences there. But mm. my goodness, they really ought not divide to the degree, or at least to the fervency that it can and sometimes does. And I run around, I'm an Amil guy who runs around with a bunch of post mills. And so, you know, uh, I, I often feel like, like I said, I'm a lion. Are you at least day. optimistic in your millennialism? Yes, for I'm, them? I'm optimistic. Okay. I'm optimistic, but I'm, but, I, but I'm not, I have, I have no optimism ultimately in this world. No, I do not. I have optimism <laughs> in God um, reaching the nations with the gospel. That's where my optimism lies. Because, But I do not think this world is going to be transformed in any kind of wonderful sense prior to the return of Christ. Well, hopefully uh, this conversation that we've had today and maybe perhaps your book can be part of kind of moving the ball forward in having more productive conversations. And I didn't mention this beforehand, but we're planning on giving away a copy of this book uh, to one of our listeners in conjunction with the release of this episode. So details of that will be in our show notes. Um, so hopefully we can have better conversations moving forward. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I really do appreciate uh, your guys' questions. Um, the time we could spend talking about this. And and let me just say too that um, I have a personal conviction that anything, and I'm, I'm not saying this to make anyone else feel like they have to do this. I'm just telling you my convictions. But I think theology should always be free. And so if you want this book um, free as a PDF, now I don't, I'm not going to spend money. I'm going to get, not going to give you a paperback or a hardback because it's going to cost me something then. But if you want a PDF of this book, it is on my website, um, soundofdoctrine.wordpress.com. And, uh, all my books are there free PDF. So you want to love that. If, if you want to save yourself the trouble of burning it and you just want to throw it in a little <laughs> trash can on your windows, <laughs> feel free to. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a PDF doesn't fit on a shelf. 
So we we still want to give away a hard copy. So that's well, well thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well we, we did cover a lot of ground today. Is there anything else you want to say before we close out? Want to give you the floor for just any points we may have missed or anything you want to highlight? No, that's good. I, I really do appreciate the conversation. I uh I, you know I do think if people give the book a fair shake, I did try to write write it in an accessible, winsome humorous kind of way, but I trust with all the substance necessary to genuinely challenge um, um, anyone who holds the limited atonement. The book is a boisterously reformed polemic against limited atonement, and today it's been a boisterously reformed polemic podcast. So thanks so much, (laughs) Austin, for uh, joining us today. I'm I'm glad you joined us. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) 